house this morning. We're going to read uh, all the verses we read in our, our morning reading, uh, as well as four more, of which will be the text that we look at today. John chapter 6 and in verse 4, the Bible says in the Passover, a feast of the Jews was nigh, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? This he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a land here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. What are they among so many? Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was uh, much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them uh, together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, for who and what you are, for the many wonderful gifts and blessings you have given us. And Lord, we ask you to bless the sermon this morning. I thank you, Lord, for everything that, is, uh, that has uh, transpired, Father, for this message to come forth today. And I pray that you meet everyone's need, Lord God, here this morning. Lord, I pray and lift up those uh, hurt in the midst of the storm uh, in Florida. We pray, dear God, that your ever-loving grace would be seen and known. Uh, Father, that we would see out of this tragedy, Lord God, uh, men and women withstand Help their fellow neighbor, help their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And dear God, we pray at the end of it all things, the name of Jesus will be lifted up and exalted on high. So Lord, I love you. We don't have to understand things, Lord. We just have to trust and believe today. And so I love you and ask of you here this morning, have your will and your way in our morning service. Touch the hearts of everyone present and those who will listen otherwise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So last week we looked at the motivation of the multitude, which brings us to the very next event in John chapter 6, of which we know to be the miracle. The miracle. Now the Bible is very clear in verse 2, as we saw last week, uh, as to why the multitude followed Jesus Christ. Their motivation, guys, is ever before us because they saw uh, the miracles in which he did. They saw uh, the diseased heal and all the things that Jesus had done up until this point. Now, guys, I'm not, I'm not uh, necessarily saying this is all negative, but I will say this this morning. Uh, when the motivations are revealed, it will begin to weed out many, many, many people. As a matter of fact, you're going to find out as we get to the end of the chapter, uh, it will even weed out disciples. You know, a disciple is known as a student or a pupil, amen, a follower, if you will. So they were bona fide followers of Jesus Christ who believed he was exactly who he said he was. And yet by the end of the day, because of their motivation, they will depart. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned more times in the gospel than the virgin birth or the ascension of Christ on high. As a matter of fact, throughout the gospel, Luke omits the wise men uh, from the east. Matthew omits the shepherds in the fields. Mark omits Gabriel speaking with Mary. 
John omits the prodigal son and the rich man and Lazarus. Mark says nothing about the marriage supper or the wise and foolish virgins, nor does John. Only one account of the new birth is recorded, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all omit the new birth. Only one account contains the real Lord's Prayer, found in John 17. Matthew, Mark, and Luke omit those. You say, what's a real Lord's Prayer? It's not, you know, you know our, our Heavenly Father who art, our, who art in heaven. That's the model prayer. Jesus gave us a model prayer. How do we pray? We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But the Lord's Prayer is found in John 17, but that's neither here nor there for this morning. Now, neither Mark or Luke give you the details of the healing of the maniac of Gadara, which is found in Mark chapter 5 and so forth. There are several things, vitally important events in the Holy Scripture, things that change our lives today and in the hereafter, but they're not mentioned. However, all four of these wonderful evangelists, these wonderful authors of the gospel, all four of them records a one-time feeding of the 5,000 Jews in the wilderness. Why is it so important? What is so important about a group of people being fed in, in what Luke calls in Luke 9, 12, a desert place, that would, that would make it appear more important than the new birth, the virgin birth of Christ, the Lord's Prayer, the ascension of the Lord. Now, you know, stay with me on this. You know, but most, the, the most important thing in the book here, where a major emphasis is always found, is never on the new birth, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the crucifixion, the plan of salvation, the sacraments, which we know they're not sacraments, they're ordinances, the church, but rather, the major emphasis is always placed on one event, the second coming of Jesus Christ. You see, the second coming of Jesus Christ. For every verse of the seven things I just mentioned to you, combined, there are ten verses relating to the second advent of Jesus Christ. So I want you to remember this this morning, because before we close this morning, I'm going to give you the why it's most important. Why, out of all the events we find recorded in the Gospels, why did all four of these guys make sure they recorded the feeding of the 5,000? Why is it so important? But for the meantime, guys, we're going to get into three points this morning. And I want, to, I want us to focus on what I'm going to say the positive here and, and uh, what we see that the Lord Jesus can do in our life in those days and times when things just seem to be utterly impossible in our life, utterly, completely impossible in our days, things that we don't seemingly can get over or are ever going to occur or happen. What can we see in the midst of this record of the feeding of the 5,000? The first thing that you're going to see this morning is you're going to see a test, if you will, a test. Look in verse 5 there of our text this morning. The Bible says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Philip, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, beloved, one thing is certain, and I want you to mark this down. Jesus Christ never asks a question that he doesn't already know. He doesn't already know the answer to, okay? I mean, we see it in, uh, with Adam in the garden. He said, Where art thou? He knew where he was. He knew exactly where he was. He wanted Adam to confess what he had done and where he was, that he was separated from God. And matter of fact, he even asked, he says, you know, thou eatest of the, the tree that's in the midst of the garden. He knew the answer to that also, guys. And you know what's interesting about the events in the garden? What was really in, interesting about that is that uh, the very first question in the New Testament, the very first question ever asked in Matthew 2, 2 says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? See, God is looking for man in Genesis chapter 3, but by the time we get to the New Testament, man's looking for God in Matthew 2. Guys, when Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked this question. He said, but whom, say, uh, but whom say ye that I am? Guys, he knew the answer. 
Same thing with Martha. Jesus said to Martha, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He says, Believeth thou this? He knew the answer. Matter of fact, on the boat, Jesus asked a two-part question with a uh, mixed-in rebuke to the disciples. And he saith unto them, uh, he says, Why are ye fearful, you of little faith, he says. Then, arose and re- then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and, and there was a great calm. Amen. So, beloved, Jesus knows the answer to all things. He knows every question that he will ever ask. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4 in your screen says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 tells us, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. In Luke chapter 5, verse 22, But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said unto them, Why, What reason ye in your hearts? And the same thing in Luke eleven seventeen. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself uh, is brought uh, to desolation, and a house divided against uh, against a house shall fall. Um, sorry, falleth. So that's the same thing. Here we find a test, but Jesus Christ is asking a question for a particular reason, and he never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer. And he presented this to Philip, and it was a test. And I trust, guys, if you in. In all fairness, in our life today, and we may not hear the audible verse of Jesus Christ asking a question, but I know in my heart that the Lord will impress upon us questions that will make us, through the Word of God, begin to reveal unto us questions that He already knows the answer to. And it's for one reason, it's a test. And that test was meant to try them, try them. Look in verse 6, we see this answer very clearly. In verse 6, the Bible tells us in verse 6, and this He said to prove them beloved there are many things in our life often we can we cannot put our fingers on or the reasons why they are happening but simply a lot of times many a times they are a test to try us to prove us and this word prove is defined as to as to try whether a thing uh, can be done to attempt to endeavor to try to make a trial or a test for the purpose of ascertaining its quality the same thing that we find with with david David, the Bible tells us in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel 17, and David girded his sword. This is Saul's armor that he had given unto him. And David girded his sword upon his armor and is saying to go, and, uh, for he had not proved them. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these things, for I have not proved them. And David put them off of him. He put them on, and I can imagine this little 14-year-old ruddy boy that, that was getting ready to go out and face this champion of Gath, you know, and, and, and Saul puts it on him. The Bible tells us that Saul was head and shoulders against, uh, above everyone else, so this armor wouldn't have fit David. And he, he tried to go. He made an attempt to go. And he's like, wait a second, I can't go in these things. They're not proven. Again, there is proof of the Lord's knowledge, because we find in the very same verse, verse 6, for he himself knew what he would do. Guys, we have tests in our life. We have trials in our life. And those trials are coming in many times, if not most of the time, to prove us of where we stand, to prove us of what we're willing to do, to prove us whether we have faith in the, the everlasting word of God and the, and the appearing of Jesus Christ in the air, if we are really and truly locked into that. Guys, I'm seeing people today running around frantic. I saw a headline of an article um, Yesterday, I guess it was, maybe it was Friday, I don't know, of these evangelicals who, what they're calling, they're saying they're suffering from rapture anxiety, all right, rapture anxiety. 
Now, everything's an anxiety nowadays. I don't know. Everybody has some type of issue. Everybody wants a diagnosis. They want some type of label. I have no earthly idea. I'm just going to say it like this. I think because the majority of us are weak, if you want to know the truth. I think our generation coming up behind us is very weak. They're weak in scripture. They're weak in a backbone. Men are weak in doing a manly job. Women are weak in doing their job. I'm just, I think the churches are weak. I think the men that have come in, crept in underwears that we hear about on Wednesday, about the apostates coming in in their furry little robes. I think they're weak and they're, they're preaching and teaching a false, damnable heresy, if you want to know the truth. And the results of that is everybody running around frantic. I, let, me, let me break something down for you. If you will stop trying to figure out something that's not there, you won't have so much anxiety in your life and pop a pill to make yourself feel better. Jesus Christ said, no man knoweth the day nor the hour, amen, okay? That's talking about the second coming. The son himself doesn't even know when the father's going to say, go get your bride, Amen. So the second coming, my friend, is, is, is after the seven-year tribulation period. You, no mathematics on this planet is ever going to figure it out because the infinite God is the one that said it. Oh, the feast of the trumpets. Man, I, I'm telling you, I get so tired of hearing about the calculations and the physics and all this. Now, the, it's gone. Here we are on the 2nd October. Guess what? We're still here, amen? And what will happen is these yahoos will step back and they'll say, whoa, wait a second, we, were, we miscalculated something. That sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? An entire cult was started over that nonsense, okay? Miller, when he went out in the fields in the 1800s and, and said, well, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, didn't come back. And they said, well, it was hidden from my brother, so he's going to come back in two weeks, and on and on. And finally, Miller said, you know what? I'm wrong. This is wrong. I'm leaving. And a witch by the name of Ellen G. White picked it up and started writing false, damnable heresies, amen, and formed an entire religion. And it ain't Christianity. I'm saying all that to say this, my friend. Don't worry about when the rapture is going to happen. Be concerned with what you're going to do between now and then. Amen? Because when it does happen, there's no, there's no uh, to, uh, reduce. There's no going back witnessing to your lost loved ones. When it happens, this life's over with. Amen? It's a comforting thought. The Bible tells us to comfort one another with those thoughts. Not run around frantic and uh, having anxiety and being anxious. Amen? So we find here with our Lord Jesus Christ... He is testing, he is trying his disciples who would follow him and see him do all these marvelous works that he's done. And both of their unbelief, both with Andrew and Philip, and I'm not, I'm not speaking ill of them, I'm just saying this is what they looked at. Having already seen dead raised and all these healings that have already happened, they said, well, Lord, 200 penny worth of bread, that ain't enough, man. You know, that's, Lord, that's not, here's the, here's the creator of all things. He owns everything and the cattle's on the hill with the cattle's to boot. And they're saying, I don't think we got enough. You know, Philip's over there is like, man, what in the world are we going to do? I don't, what, there, we have nothing. You know, I don't know, well, how are we going to feed these people? And the Lord says, you know what, I'm going to make this, I'll make a point here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you. I'm going to prove you. And we remember the motivation of the people out there. The motivation of the multitude was linked to a miracle, the healing of the diseased. And now we see another miracle on the forefront, the feeding of this multitude. The very people that are there because of the disease they saw. So the Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm going to give a learning experience to my disciples. I'm going to give you a test here. Hey, what do you think we ought to do? I'm going to, I'm going to prove you. I'm going to, I'm going to try you here. Yeah, 200 penny worth is not enough. And he took the opportunity to make it a teaching moment. To make it a teaching moment. The first teaching point that draws attention to what we must consider is that which we look at what is little. 
Verse 7 tells us here, Philip answered and said, 200 penny worth of, of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now again, I say this, the creator of all things, the savior of the world, God in heaven, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one saying, what do you think we ought to do here? And Philip says, you know what, man, wait a second. We, we just, how, how, this is not enough money. What's everybody going to have? A little scale? And I mean, how, how's it going to work? Did you know, if you look at the calculations, even if, when we get here in just a moment with the, the little boy, even if you were to fourth, a quarter of these things up, this food up, by the time they got to the second person, they'd have ran out of supply. So God intervened. That which is little. Oftentimes, my friend, we fail to see the big picture in those things that the world and us sometimes consider to be small. I've preached on the insignificant things of life, and you're not one of them. I've preached to you and told you how we are not, you are not insignificant in the eyes of the Lord. I've preached on that multiple times. Let me ask you this. Was it a little thing when Jesus Christ went into Sychar, that city of Samaria? The Bible tells us in John chapter 4 and in verse 4, it says very clearly here, it says, and he must needs go through Samaria. I mean, what was the result of him going uh, in, in Samaria? What was his result of going into Sychar? Well, the gospel was heard by the people, so the door of the gospel was opened into Samaria. And I want you to see here, he says, he must need, so that we find that, uh, that, that the gospel came in there. But look there in John chapter 4, verse 28 through 30. It says, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out to the city and came unto him. And we'll keep reading, then we'll, we'll sum, out, sum it up a little bit. John 4, 39 41, it says, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all things that, that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him, he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own words. One woman, one individual in a city of Sychar, as a matter of fact, in a country of Samaria, which the Jews were have no dealings with. And yet, John 4, 4 says that he must needs go through there. Why? Because of that one woman. Not only a one woman, one woman with a sketchy past. One woman who has had five husbands, and the one that she was with now wasn't even her own. Amen. And we would look at that. I mean, matter of fact, the disciples came back. They had went off to get something to eat, find some meat. And they're like, well, what are you talking to her for? What's going on here? I don't know. What are you doing? And then he gives them the testimony of saying that the harvest is not two months away, da da da, da or four months away. Uh, behold, the harvest is it's white already under harvest, right? Why? Because that one lady that Jesus Christ must needs go see ran into that city and despite her past had the power of the gospel of Christ on her tongue. She said, this is not this the Christ. Her singular testimony, listen carefully to me, her singular testimony enabled the gospel to come into a city that was to have nothing to do. A city without hope, my friend. How dare we look at something and go, it's just not enough. How dare we look at, at, at our influence and, and the work of the God? How dare we say, well, we're just a few. I don't have the scriptures down, but in 1 Samuel 17, I'd mentioned this last week in a message, when, uh, when David showed up there for that battle, 
He shows up to that battle, and he's like, hey, man, is there not a cause? You know, let me at him. And oh, Eliab, his brother, who was angry and jealous and envious over, over who David was, amen, uh, he says, man, look, what are you doing here? I know the naughtiness of thy heart. I know your pride, he said. He goes, where are those few sheep? You ever heard, you ever, people, you know, what, what, what did they say? Well, where are those just few people you have in church? What are y'all going to do in Abrahamic? Well, what's just that few people going to do in the Cunning Valley? What are just those few people committed to prayer on a Friday morning? What, I mean, what, what's that going to do? I don't know about you, but as a result of one woman hearing the gospel, the entire city got saved and born again in Sychar. What about that? What about when Jesus Christ crossed the Sea of Galilee and came into the, 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 the area of Gadara? Mark chapter 5, verses 7 and 9, and verse 15, and you know the story, so I won't, I won't spend a whole lot of time here. But the Bible says, I adjure thee by God, and thou tormentest not. This is the devil speaking unto Jesus. Verse 8 says, For he said unto them, Come out of the man of thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 15 later on says, And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil, and had the legion sitting and clothed, and in his right mind. They were afraid. I bet they were. Here's a guy that was running through the tombs naked, cutting himself. They tried to bind him in chains and fetters. He just plucked those things off like they were nothing. I bet you they were afraid. I wonder sometimes if it's how bad they treated that guy. Now he's in his right mind. They're thinking, oh, man, he's going to remember what we did to him. <laughs> I bet they were afraid, amen. For that maniac, guys, you know, that one person, they begged Jesus Christ to leave those people the city did. They said, you need to get out of here. But for that maniac in Mark 5, verses 18 through 20, it says that when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him, howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish into capitalists, how great things Jesus had done for him. And the Bible says, all men did marvel. One man. This one man went through Decapolis, which means ten cities, telling of the great things that Jesus Christ did for him. And the Bible says, all men marveled. I mean, the gospel was open, the gospel was known, opening up the door to millions for one man. You go back and you study this at home today, and you're going to find out seemingly Jesus Christ crossed that sea and went to Gadara for one person. He came to that shore. The devils were cast out in a pack of swine. They ran off the, cl uh, the, the cliff and committed to kill themselves. And, and, and all of a sudden, this guy's saved. He's cleansed. And Jesus and the apostles pack it up and go somewhere else. One person. Oh, but you know, what, what can be you know, what is this amongst so many? Ten cities. We talk about a metropolis. This was a Decapolis. Bet Sheehan, we've been in that city ruins. Bet Sheehan, that was one of the cities of Decapolis. Heard the gospel, if you will, because one man got saved. What is this little among so many? What about Philip? You know, I love the story of Philip. I uh, Philip's not, you know, you know, the book of Acts are about four people, essentially four people. And Philip being one of them. So we see Philip, Peter, Stephen, and Paul. The majority of it's written about Paul. But I love the story of Philip. Philip goes into Samaria after the dispersion, after the persecution of the, of the, uh, the killing of Stephen, of whom 
you know, Paul was a part of, consenting unto his death. And he's up there preaching, working and working and working. I mean, he's working himself to, to the ground. And I know what that's like, guys. I know what it's like to, to look at your schedule in the upcoming week going, man, my soul, I can't wait till next Monday, amen, so I can get through these next days because I'm seeing all of the, what this schedule's like. Man, it's just going to be unbelievable. And I can see Philip's looking for that one Monday. And next Monday, when I get done in Samaria, man, I'm going to preach my heart out. People are going to hear the gospel. And then I'm, I'm going to get to Monday, and when I get to Monday, I'm going to lay down and take me a nap. I can't wait. Philip rocks on. He gets back to Jerusalem. He lays down that little bed, whatever he had, stone, whatever. And he's getting ready to take his nap, brother. And then we find verse 26 of Acts 8. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south. Man, I was just up in the north. Go toward the south now. And unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of a great authority, under Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in her chariot, and his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to uh, this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And that eunuch turned and said, He said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now get the picture here, guys. The Lord sent Philip on a mission, one person to meet another one person. To find this man reading a copy of Isaiah 53 specifically. I don't know where he got this copy. I preached on this before. I actually preached it last Sunday night uh, from this topic as well. Uh, but I don't know where he got the copy. I know this, that he was in charge of all the treasure of Candice the Queen. If he purchased it, he purchased it with a great sum of money. If someone gave it to him, like we would give somebody a gospel tract, man, it's the greatest gift to date that he would ever receive. This guy was reading it. Now remember, what was his purpose? Why did he come to Jerusalem? He came to worship. He knew, listen, he was from a pagan land. Matter of fact, he was from a pantheistic land where they worshiped the birds and the bees and the sycamore trees and the stars and the moon. They worshiped all those things. But he knew if God was going to be found, he'd be found there in Jerusalem. And he shows up in Jerusalem in nothing more than a city of commerce now, commercialization. He shows up, and unbeknownst to him, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, him being a eunuch, he can't even proselyte to Judaism. My soul, I bet he was depressed. I bet he was disillusioned. I bet he was distraught. Somehow, some way, he gets a hold of Isaiah 53, and he's reading it. And he's like, my goodness. And Philip says, you, you understand what you're reading there, bud? He goes, how can I let the, somebody show me? Well, we pick up Acts 8, 32 through 39. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before the shearer, so he opened not his mouth. And in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, Isaiah 53, and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What doth hindereth me to be baptized? I don't know if I have the rest of it on there. It's up there. Hopefully you can read it. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
It's funny how the devil takes that out of some versions, isn't it? He'll skip over and stick an asterisk there in, in uh, verse 37. Older and better manuscripts remove this. Yeah, just because it's old don't make it better. Amen. Verse 38 says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, and both uh, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way. What's that last word? Rejoicing, amen. My soul. Here's a guy that went to Jerusalem to find God. Okay? And he gets there, and he finds out because of his physical position in life, you can't be part of this belief. You cannot be part of this religion. And I could park there for, oh, so long. Now, I guess, I wonder, I wonder, it doesn't seem like, Augustinism doesn't show up until the second century, but it doesn't seem like Philip had much to do when uh, he started, he says, if thou believest, thou mayest. He didn't say if you're part of the chosen frozen, you can get into heaven. Didn't say that, did he? If you've been predestinated from the foundation of the world, you know, didn't say that. It said, if you believe, thou mayest. It's that simple, my friend. My soul, this guy. What a beautiful, I mean, he went away here. He was, he was, he was distraught. I said last week uh, in the evening time that he was a melancholy member of state. And now the Bible says he's rejoicing because his soul now was infinitely more important than Jesus, to, to Jesus Christ than to anything else because he is saved and he's born again. And do you know what history tells us? History tells us that that eunuch took the gospel back to Ethiopia and opened up the entire door in North Africa for souls to be saved and born again. I got a story I could tell you, but I'm not for time's sake. But Guys, I, I'm here to say this. When you feel or you look at something to be so little, take it as a teaching point that Jesus Christ has done. The Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 4.10, For who hath despised the day of small things? Oh, Amos, the Bible tells us of Amos that he was just a herd man from the backside of Tekoa. All right? And you begin to break apart uh, his, his life, you find out that everything that is equated to his life was minuscule. Uh, weak trees, the sycamore trees, they were cheap. You look at the mind, I'm preaching on Gideon tonight down, down at Calvary. So you look at Gideon, and the Bible gives him that, that picture. He gives him that dream and that barley loaf coming down and knocking those teeth. That barley loaf was Gideon, they said, there in the Bible. Guess what? Barley is the cheapest and the weakest and the worst part of bread. What kind of loaves was this in this, that, that little boy's hand? Barley loaves. Oh, despise not the day of small things. Here is the test. This is the trial. This is the teaching moment that Jesus Christ said. What was little to man was perfect for Jesus. And then quickly this morning, we see the little lad. Hey, little boy. Man, I tell you what, I would pay as much money as I could to see this kid just walking. He's just going home with lunch, man. I don't know if his mama packed that lunch. I don't know if they sent him into the city to, to, to pick up some lunch for the family. I have no earthly idea. I do know this. When he came back home, Man, did he have a story to tell, and a whole lot more than five loaves and two barley fish. Verse 8 and 9 says uh, uh, here about this lad, it says, Of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. What, is, what are they among so many? 
The lad had a little lunch, another teaching opportunity for Jesus Christ. It wasn't just five loaves and two fishes, but guys, it was two small fishes. And, and, and again, I love how the Holy Spirit of God makes sure that we understand. It wasn't, hey, it could have been a big swordfish. It wasn't that. It wasn't a big old man. It could have been anything. No, it was two little bitty small fish. So the disciples say, what are, what are they amongst so many? You see, my friend, the Lord is using a teaching moment. From the backside of this test and the backside of this trial, and the Lord is teaching his disciples of the things which we see to be small and little in the hand of a lad can be turned into something great, can be turned into a load in the hand of God. Skip down to verse 11 in the first part of 12. It says, And Jesus took loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. And likewise, of the fishes, as much as they would, in the first few words, it says, When they were filled filled enough for 5,000 men to be filled I know I usually eat two or three helpings but guys it's possibly 20,000 plus they only numbered the men that sat down you imagine each man had a wife and probably at least two children at least 20,000 plus man beloved the Lord would takes care of his people do you understand that this morning and he does this to their fullest. And you can hang around eating the devil's scraps if you want to. But guys, if you want to be filled this morning, it's going to come through the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only were the people taken care of, not only did a mighty work take place and the multitude's needs be met, but I want to tell you at the end of this thing, we find some leftovers. The rest of verse 12 picks up and says, And he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Enough food for 5,000 men, for possibly 20,000 people, having a good meal, they were filled, and now you got twelve baskets full of leftover and only started with two small fish and five barley loaves. You see, the Lord does these things, guys. He answers our prayers in life. Uh, the, these answered prayers in our life become blessings for the moment, but they become lessons within our lives in the leftovers. Lessons to learn continually. Answered prayers in our life. 20 and 30 years later on, we can look back and say, hang on a second. I remember when we had just a little and there was this land that came, but hey, listen, it became loads, and on top of the loads, there was a leftover. Residual blessings of what have happened in our life. So why is this so important? Why is it? There, some people would say, well, preacher, this is so important because this is evidence that we should go feed the, feed the poor and feed the hungry. It ain't got anything to do with that. Guys, I mean, I'm all for feeding the homeless. I'm all for the works that are done. But I'm telling you right now, if you give somebody warm soup and a good drink and you don't give them the gospel, you're just making them fat fit for hell. That fat and fit for hell, that's it. The whole reason for the feeding of the 5,000 comes right back around to our introduction this morning. The final verse of our text, look there with me if you will, verse 14. It says, then, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. You see, that prophet is mentioned in verse 14, is that prophet that is asked about in John chapter 1, verse 21 of John the Baptist. And they asked, what then, art, art thou Elias? 
But he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. Of course, we know the rest of the story with John the Baptist. Later on, he says, I must decrease, he must increase. That prophet, this prophet that are speaking of here, that prophet in verse 14, that prophet which is the hook and connection to why Jesus Christ fed the five, we think he just wanted to meet their need. He took the opportunity to test his disciples, to try his disciples, and then a teaching point for everyone, and we think that the whole reason was just so people got a free meal. The whole reason was so they continued to follow him, and it was neither one of those. You see, that prophet it speaks us of is going to be like Moses. Acts chapter 3, verse 22, For Moses truly said unto, your, unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever ye shall say unto me. So why is the feeding of the 5,000 so important? Because it was Moses who fed his people miraculously in the wilderness with heavenly manna, just like uh, he will do again after the rapture, which is found in Revelation chapter 12. Now, the rapture is earlier than that. But those two witnesses, which are Moses and Elijah, will feed again his people during that tribulation period. They will be fed with manna miraculously, just like they were in the Old Testament, and just like Jesus Christ did in the miracle found in all four accounts of the gospel. It is this miracle which establishes to the people Jesus Christ is that prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of mankind. And can I say this to you? Everything lies in the fact and points to him coming back the second time. That's the reason, guys. You say, well, preacher, is the deity of Christ less important than this chapter right here? Is the new birth, is the church, is all the things that I mentioned earlier? I know, and they're not, they're not less important, but I will say this. The validity of the deity of Christ, the support of the virgin birth, the church, the ascension on high, all of those things, they hook on this, Jesus Christ being that prophet, that Messiah, that Savior, who would come and would lead his people unto salvation. The miracle, my friend. There's more going on here than we think. There's more going on here than we imagine. But there's definitely more than just feeding people with food. It points toward his return. It points toward his return to set up his kingdom and the church coming with him. And beloved, seven years prior to that, the church gets out of here. The catching away of the bride of Christ. Will you bow your heads? Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for the morning and the opportunity. I thank you, Lord, for your precious word. I thank you for a holy scripture, dear God, that we can look and see how it is so perfectly and inerrantly connected one with another. I thank you for the chain, dear God, that you have given us all the way from the beginning of the book to the end and how you have connected over 95,000 things cross-referencing one with another inside the holy scripture. So, Lord, I give you glory, honor, and praise, and thank you for what you've done for us on the cross, fulfilling the scripture, being buried in the grave, and most importantly, risen again that we may have eternal life. Let us today take that which we've heard and the miracle that has occurred here in John chapter 6. Let us apply it into our life, Father. Let us live, Lord, pleasing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope and Thank you so much for joining us today. I do hope and pray the sermon you just heard was a tender blessing to your heart and to your soul. I hope that it gives you the encouragement, edification to face the challenges that we see each and every day and week throughout our life. I'd like to invite you out to one of our live services here at Seren Chapel in Abraham. 
We are located on Lewis Street as well as Davis Street. Davis Street is the entrance to our chapel, and as well as Lewis Street is the entrance to our hall, and you can use either one of them. But secondly today, guys, I would like to share just a brief message to you now to ask you to where you are going in eternity. If today was the last day you were alive, if today, by some tragedy, this was the last moment you had on this earth, when you closed your eyes, would you wake up and see Jesus Christ? It is a simple question, guys, and it is even a more simple answer. The Bible tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, paid the ultimate price for mankind. He gave us the free pass to eternal life by giving his life on the cross of Calvary, being buried into that grave, but rising again on the third day. It is simple as this. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You see, guys, while we were sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ loves us so much that he gave his life. As a matter of fact, Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sin is defined as the transgression of God's law. But what happened was the payment with, for mankind is death. Romans 6.23 clearly tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So I ask you today, what would, what would stop you right here, right now, for bowing your head and saying a prayer much like this, Lord Jesus Christ, I trust in you. Jesus Christ, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that you stepped up out of the grave to give us victory over sin and victory over death. I invite you into my heart and ask forgiveness of my sins and ask you to lead God and direct me throughout the rest of my life. Now, here's the thing. You say that prayer in your own words, but you have to say it and believe in it. Remember, Romans 10, 9 says, And believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That is a promise from the word of God. That is a promise from God himself. That is the promise from the creator of all things, that if you'll believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, ask forgiveness of your sins, accept his free gift and pardon of sin into your heart today, that you will be born again, that you will have eternal life in heaven. Guys, I hope and pray this is a blessing to you today. I hope and pray that you'd make that decision. And if you have, if you've made that decision today, let us rejoice with you. Come by and see us here at the church or hit us up online at any of the social media outlets or through email or however you can. Just share with us the glorious transformation that you just received in your life. Guys, I hope to see you soon in the house of God. I hope to see you soon right here in Sharon Chapel. And may the Lord be with each and every one of you. God bless.